Hello and welcome to Do The Franchise with me, Jake. And me, James. And, oh, it's warm, James. <laughs> it, it's it's really warm. I like, This is unusual for, for England. It's, well, it not, is. Uh, it's not the norm. So I'm kind of like in transition in terms of my little home office setup. Um, and obviously, James, you've not been here yet because of COVID, but I've... So I've got like a little room, it's got my Mac set up in it, it's got all my trinkets and things around me, a little study, but directly in front of my Mac where I'm currently sat is a massive window and there's no blinds, so it's just (laughs) blaring sun coming down. So I've had to get two towels and just hang them up on the roof to stop, on the ceiling, just to stop some of this sun coming in. I like it, It's it's a good solution. It's a good solution. This is such a it's such a British thing, though, isn't it? Like we just moan about everything. I'm fucking rain, fucking yeah. sun. It's just everything. We we're a nation of moderation, aren't we? We we don't want yeah. too much of anything. But yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, yeah. This is definitely too hot. So yeah, it's been a few weeks. Um, we are back. We are going to start cracking on with our Batman schedule and get it finished with, and then obviously start a new franchise. But. This one feels like it deserves grandeur. Not that I don't think all of our episodes do, but this one in particular that you think kind of feels different to what we've seen before. Yeah, I mean, I I have a a real nostalgia for this film in that I think this was the first film I went back to the cinema to see more than once. Okay, that's interesting fact. I don't think I'd done that before and I ended up seeing this film about four times at the cinema with various different people but yeah. it didn't feel like a, a chore to go and see it four times because there's there's a lot to get your teeth into it, there is um, the film we're doing today is The Dark Knight the obligatory follow up to Batman Begins which we did last time uh, I say last week it was it was like a month ago but we did it we did Batman Begins really enjoyed that film uh, I really enjoyed talking about it on the podcast but this is a different kind of beast, isn't it, James? Yeah, this definitely... Uh, this is... Uh, Batman Begins was a, a very much a uh, a Batman film. Uh, this is very much a Christopher Nolan film. Yeah. Uh, I think this is, you know, the, the, the beginnings of him getting a bit of criticism for having characters that can't be heard very audibly. Um, <laughs> and uh, obviously a, a lot of his... Uh, you know, a lot of the people that praise his filmmaking, uh, a lot of that comes from this film because it yeah. was a. Uh, it's often referred to as you know a post nine eleven superhero movie. It's it's yeah. a, a film that really reflects the the world we were in at that point. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, this film is much bigger than we can possibly sum up in an hour's worth of podcast material. But just to give you guys a bit of a heads up, this is a 9 out of 10 IMDb, 94% Rotten Tomato score, 84% Metacritic score. It's got five star reviews left, right and bloody centre. Like It's strange as well for a movie that is... like We've done a lot of these Batmans now, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> these Batman films feel... They're a good popcorn flick. They're slightly... They all come from very different directions. Obviously, we know that the target audience has sort of changed as the, as the, this has gone on, you know. Like, mm. Batman Begins was a very different film to what we saw with Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. Um, you know, the two of the best films, might I add, in the Batman <laughs> saga. Um, but this film, it get, it's it's got something that critics love, 
and that's rare for a film of the comic book genre. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. This this sort of reaches out to a wider audience, doesn't it? This isn't just for Batman fans. This is for film fans. Uh, it sort of does does for the Batman storylines what Tarantino films do for critics. You know, it gives them a little bit yeah. of what they really enjoy. I mean, I feel like we're going to shoot straight off here. Like, I think this film is. It's a very different movie, like you say, in terms of structure and uh, the mise-en-scene, the cinematography. It's a much larger film in every single sense of the word. Like, there are no small studio um, shots. There are no crammed back rooms. There is no narrows or dingy offices with Scarecrow and these tiny little sets where coppers are crammed into these little corner offices and Gordon's crappy little... Ha- like, it's all very big. This film feels like they use Chicago, which is where it's primarily shot. Chicago almost becomes a huge canvas from which Nolan is able to sort of paint on all these different set pieces, yeah. character development um, bits, um, these plots and these um, hidden characters and subplots that go on. And there are a lot of them, like just to get our head around it. This film picks up um, pretty much immediately after Batman Begins, as far as we're led to believe. Um, and you get this sweeping shot of Chicago as it opens. But obviously it's not Chicago, it, it, it's Gotham, but... It's yeah. an IMAX shot. It's massive. It, it slowly creeps in to a building where a window explodes and then the film starts. And that, for me, kind of... That window exploding was kind of a metaphor for what I feel is the entire film. It's like you're in this false sense of security getting drifting in. And some films, and I think there was a guy that I, I read about um, who reviewed Dark Knight, said that some films you can just go in and out of or you can you can get off the sofa and go to the toilet or go and grab a beer and come back and you feel like you're still in the film. It's like you can't do this with Dark Knight. No, you know, no. you have to stay watching it. And it's about three hours long, but you can't really get up because if you go to the toilet and come back, you're not going to know what's happened. <laughs> True. Um, it, it grabs you, doesn't it? Right from the yeah, get-go. Yeah. Mm. It's one of those movies where every scene is a self-contained film, if that makes sense. Like, I feel yeah. like the attention to the detail and the acting, um, the cinematography and the shots, everything about each scene, the scenes can stand on their own out of context and still you'd be like, this is an amazing... Who made this? But yeah. then when you put them all together, it is a very big epic uh, epic movie. Uh, it came out in 2008, which just feels like a very long time ago. Um, and, yeah, it kind of starts with the idea that it, straight away we've got a new villain in town uh, he's the Joker just in case you didn't realise mm-hmm. and he's going to rob banks and he sort of starts wreaking havoc on Gotham City and the film starts with, with Joker which is the first time we've kind of done that in a Batman film isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it introduces you to his particular brand of chaos because it's Joker and this crew of clowns robbing a, a mob bank and I just I, I love the way each of them have been given very specific instructions, and once the next person's done their bit, they're told to kill that person. Yeah. And it's just it's just like this domino effect. And because they're all wearing masks at this stage, you you don't know who they are. And then there's yeah. the, there's the the initial reveal of Joker, and it's it's phenomenal. I think this opening scene was a big part of why I kept going back to watch it. Yeah, because it's such a great scene. 
It is. The setup's brilliant. I mean, these little, um, what do you call them? Would you call them opening preludes, I think? Prelude? Yeah. They sort of became a, a, a thing that Nolan did. Like, he released the prelude for this film on the back of another Warner Brothers film. I think he did the same with the, with the third one. He did the same with um, uh, Tenet and uh, Interstellar, I think. Like, yeah. he releases these little introductions to the movies before the movies are released to tease the audience a little bit but also like i said to you earlier if you go from the the joker on the corner of the street in this film to the joker taking his little clown mask off and revealing himself to david um, fickner that that bit that is a film isn't it like it feels like its own self-contained movie and then the film starts (laughs) it does and it's it's just i think it it takes you by surprise because most most movies wouldn't, I guess, wouldn't be brave enough to tell this little story right at the beginning of the film that almost doesn't link in with the rest of the film. There's no. there's, a, there's a, a small part of it that does, but the fact that it's a mob bank. But yeah, yeah, everything else, it, it could be completely unrelated. Like you say, it could be its own film. I think, in fact, looking back at my notes... Uh, I I wrote down probably towards the uh, the end of the film. I realised that this this film's about three films altogether, and I like most of them. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. Think it's it's a really impressive feat because yeah, it, even great films they obviously have bits that don't always land as well. But this film yeah. seems to punch well above its weight. It's a, it's a four-act structure, this film, and it goes straight from that... Like you say, the Joker has the intro with the bank sequence, which is all about how he how he is as a, as a character and how he betrays each of the clowns until the end, and then it's just him. Um, and then you get introduced to the Joker again in full makeup, in full pink-purple suit, when he's at the mob table scene. And that scene, like we were saying, like that almost feels like that's the intro to Joker. So the beginning yeah. bit's kind of unnecessary. Um, we then have about 15, 20 minutes of exposition about Gordon, what he's been doing, um, Bruce and Alfred, where they are now. I know Bruce isn't living in an underground bunker because Wayne Manor has been destroyed. Um, they, you get introduced to the Rachel character again, who is now shacked up with Harvey Dent, who is the new district attorney for Gotham City, because obviously the last district attorney got killed by uh, Carmine Falcone's men, didn't he, in the last one? Yeah. So there's a lot of setting up. What I do feel is sad about this film is that he did a lot of Gotham world building in the first one, and then kind of immediately chucked all that away for this yeah. one. Like, yeah, this, this Gotham it, is very different. It's it's a very different look, isn't it? It doesn't have yeah. any of that gothic vibe. It's just Chicago. It feels more in the... Less related to the sort of dark, grungy, late 90s action thrillers and the Batman mm. films like Burton that we know and love. This feels more like Heat or something of that, that genre, doesn't it? It yes. feels more like a, a cop movie. And it's so much more of a cop movie than it is a Batman movie. And this is probably my only critique of the film is that it feels like Batman as an entity gets kind of lost in the in the larger picture of the film. Yeah. In the in Batman Begins he doesn't because Batman Begins is so stylistically about Batman that he just it naturally feels like a world he would be a part of. Whereas this world feels more like our world, in which case he stands out in a different way. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. strange. I think I think this film uh it focuses more on what Bruce wants, which is quite nice in a way. But like you say, it's, it is a Batman film, not a Bruce Wayne film. 
Um, And I would say it almost stops being a Batman film after he's come back from China. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that uh, escape from China is sort of like the ultimate Batman bit in the film. And after that, there's not much of Batman in there. Not till the the end. Not till the end. So, um, but yeah, the. I, I like the scene with the mob meeting and Joker because it cuts between that and the meal that Bruce is having with Rachel and yeah. Harvey. And the way it's filmed and shot, the colours at the meal with Bruce and uh, Harvey Dent are really warm, rich colours. And then they're really cold, green colours uh, during the mob meeting. And yeah. it's such a cool contrast it's such a really good filmmaking technique where you're, you're really putting these two groups of people uh next to one another and then i mean heath ledger is just insanely quotable in this film but, yeah i will we will go on to him in a, in a bit i'm sure yeah. in more detail i liked i like the lineup of the characters again that we get gordon back in it all the original characters apart from rachel looks a bit different james <laughs> uh, yeah yeah i think uh she uh sadly fell foul of the uh, tom cruise effect um, oh. where if you're married to tom cruise and tom cruise gets a bit jealous apparently you have to quit films so yeah uh yeah katie holmes no longer with us in this film uh, but uh, we we've got Maggie, so she's great, isn't she? As well, she's brilliant. Do you know another thing? And this is we're going to do this a lot in this episode. I can feel, but there's like so many back. There's so many cool bits where they reference things that are going to happen later. Did you notice that like when they set up Batman at the beginning, they set up the coppers, Wurtz and Ramirez as key characters and you're like why are we give why do we give a crap about these two but it's like a fat old man and a and a latino woman who are introduced very early in the film and they yeah. go on to have a really big part in it but they're such small characters that are given such in- crucial bits same with the lawyer you know they introduced the lawyer at the table um at, at, at um wayne enterprises yes and you're like who cares about his lawyer guy? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, that's really clever. They sort of pay the lawyer guy off. Even, Nolan even does this with the, um, do you remember the anchor that's on the TV, the news anchor? Yes. He's he's on the telly all the way through kind of giving us plot, isn't he? Feeding he us is. information about the Joker. And at the end, he gets kidnapped by the Joker. And he's the guy that Batman lands on. I never noticed this before. But when Batman takes off the clown mask and reveals that the hostages are the clowns and the, and the doctors are the, are the clowns, the real baddies. Yeah. It's the news anchor under the mask. I was like, it oh, is. that's brilliant. That's so clever. I'd never seen that before. And I did this. This happened a lot with this film. And I yeah. really did watch it in a different way than I've ever watched it before. You get the impression that the plot was really, really thought through. Like it's yeah. uh, Some films, you, you, you get the feeling that some things that are happening are you know, just designed by committee. But this, you, you get the idea that I imagine a room full of post-it notes on the wall. Yeah. And they're, yeah. They're, they've got all these pieces of the story and they're moving it around to make it make the most sense. And that's what this film feels like. It feels like it was really uh, well thought out. It's uh, definitely very well written. I mean, like even they shoehorn Scarecrow in, don't they, in the opening few minutes yes. when um, Batman thwarts the... Um, I can't remember his name. He's one of the gangsters with greasy hair and he's got a bunch of cronies and he's there trying to sort his drug deal out and, the, and he's buying drugs off the Scarecrow that are just making people go mad, yeah. um, which is a really good throwback to Batman Begins. 
Um, we then get the sort of fake Batmans. Um, there's just a lot going on in this film. Like, like you say, it's bloated, but it doesn't feel as bloated as a bloated film. Do you know what no, I mean? Like, it it, it, it it is bloated, but it's done really well. <laughs> yeah, I think, like you said, there's a lot of meat to this film, but it's so yeah. well balanced. I think mm. that's what helps it. It's um, You look at something like the Snyder Cut of Justice League. That's a yeah. long film also, but it's not in any way as balanced as this film. So you feel that length. Uh, as you're watching it whereas this film I think because it's done in sort of parts and acts um, going into it watching it for for this review I I could definitely feel the length of the film a bit more than when I watched it the first time but from memory when I watched it the first time each new act was sort of like a breathing space Um, and it it was a time to, to sort of reset and you know the there's some really like I say there's some incredibly cool quotable lines from Heath Ledger but I think everyone gets a, a good range of really funny lines in this film so it's dark and yeah. uh, like I say it's like, like almost like a procedural cop drama kind of feel but there's some real humour in it like the uh, uh, when they sat down having a meal and Bruce says to Harvey so you're into ballet and I, <laughs> yeah. I love things like that where it's just like yeah, this is this is what I want from a superhero movie. I want smart, intelligent, sarcastic humour, and then I want some action set pieces, and then a plot that keeps my brain ticking over. And this thing, this film has it all. It's got everything in it. So uh, I think that's why it can be so bloated, but yeah. still not feel bloated. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot. There is a lot of meat. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um... This film, for me, when you look at it as an entity, feels like it's about three men. It's more about them and their ability to make choices. And that's what it comes down to. Like, you've got three men. You've got Bruce or Batman. You've got Gordon and you've got Harvey Dent. Yeah. All three of them are trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to make their city a better place. They are literally the embodiment of good. Um, Bruce is doing that through the means of vigilantism Mm. um, by dressing up as a bat and running around in the shadows. And he's not doing that from a place of legitimacy. Gordon is the idealist who's trying to do things with limited resources in a town that he doesn't trust. And then Dent is like the idealistic white knight, as they call him, who's going to do everything by the book and is completely um, willing to accept that he'll fail and die trying. Because he Mm. says that thing, doesn't he, which is a great line about you either live to be, uh, was it you die the hero or live to become the villain? Yeah. Um, And that is it, isn't it? That's the film. And the film is what tests these three men ultimately is the Joker... He plays a game with each of the three of them to see which one will crack first. Yeah. Um, and to bring them down to his level, which, as we find out in the movie, isn't really about achieving anything. It's just about dismantling the order and, and replacing it with chaos and, and, and disorder, uh, which is all he wants from the film. And there's been loads of people that have like gone to the internet to criticise the character and criticise um, the 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 plot and the way he like how he sneaks people with bombs in their bellies into prisons and all that. like if you watch the film really and, and don't think too much about logistics like everything the Joker does 
he has a backup on the other hand, doesn't he? That's kind of the whole point. Like, yeah, we we know at the end of the film, the only reason he gets himself arrested is because he wants to get to the lawyer who's in the jail cell that Gordon put him in. So, so Joker gets the jail cell next to him, doesn't he? Really, that's kind of what happened. Um, and he only does that because that was the bargain he struck with the mob at the beginning of the film. Yeah. So there's a lot of clever little devices like that but i just think that 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 for me was the the thing if in a way den is the main character of the of the transition of the film bruce is a driving force trying to keep the train on the rails and the joker is literally cutting the rail tracks up as batman's trying to steer it on yeah um and and gordon's the train driver i guess so that it's kind of an analogy i think that kind of sums it up yeah i think that that works really well actually and it's the uh I th- I think they're the the pillars that hold this film together, and they're sort of like the that they're meant to be of a similar age. Obviously, Gordon's yeah. a bit older than Bruce, but then you've got the like the elder statesman in the, in the background. So you've got Lucius Fox and yeah. Alfred, and and they're sort of almost like the audience, aren't they? They're watching all this happen, and they're yeah. they're just there to. To to be a bit of a like a voice of reason in the, yeah. in the background, which I really I I really like their their roles in this film. They're um, they're really strong uh, characters who have a very definite idea of what what life should be like, and they they see the efforts of these people, and and they they're there to offer their support, which I think I think it's a they're. Um, the the sort of like the uh, where Alfred was the the heart of the last film. I think Lucius Fox is sort of like the centre, you know, the the good centre yeah. of this film because he's he's the one who's got the moral standing to say to you know no to Bruce and this is wrong and he he doesn't um, he doesn't just yeah. say uh, he doesn't just agree with what Bruce is doing. So thinks good. Yeah. Yeah, you're right because Bat- um, Alfred does that in the first one, which is my favourite scene in the film when. He shout. I told you, didn't I? Where he shouts at Bruce and says, um, "Your father's name's all that's left of him. When you're gone, that's all there is." And and I I don't want to protect you if you're just going to throw everything away. And you're like, okay, he does have a real sense of decency about him as a human being, and he does care about Bruce. And you get that comes through more in the in the Lucius character in this one. Um, should we talk about the two villains? Because obviously we, we're going to run out of time at some yeah. point anyway. Um, obviously we've got the Joker. We've yes. got. Two-Face, which really, this is Two-Face's origin story. From the beginning of the movie to the end, it's Two-Face's film. You just forget that it's Two-Face's film because of everything else that's going on. Yeah. And And we've seen Two-Face before. (laughs) Yeah. And it was fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, this is, without a doubt, a better envisaging of Two-Face. It's kind of comic accurate. In a lot okay. of ways, and um, the the origin story I think they're pulling from for Two Face is in uh, a series of comics called The Long Halloween, mm-hmm. um, which has actually been made into an animated uh, film. Uh, the, there's part one of it out now, um, okay. based on on the comics, and the yeah, the general gist of it is uh, Bruce Gordon and Dent come together to try and solve. A uh, a serial killer who kills on holidays, so he, he, they've named him the Halloween Killer, and he mm. um, 
and it, it involves the, uh, the similar set of crime bosses being killed as well. So it's obviously quite an influence for the story of this film. Yeah. Um, and that that is uh, Two-Face's origin as well. Uh, I, I, I like what they did with this film. Apparently, uh, Hugh Jackman was once in line to be Two-Face. Oh, really? Which... And even Mark Ruffalo <laughs> was named at one point, which would have been really weird. But I could uh, see Mark Ruffalo. I think probably yeah. not. I don't think I could see Hugh. No, I think uh, Hugh's too, you know, too definitely Wolverine, basically, to be anything yeah. else at this stage. And, I, and yeah, and I think Aaron Eckhart. I've seen only a few films that he's been in, but he's got a darkness to him which you yeah. know it's no way near is that it's no is no way is that apparent at the beginning of the movie but there's there's subtle hints towards the true nature of dent because this is one of them films where they don't just turn bad so there must have been something in him the whole time mm. but unlike the tommy lee jones one we don't ever get to go through the psyche i like the i like the bit where in in the courtroom they show a co- um, a criminal He's doing the court case for Maroney. And in yeah. the comics, Maroney's the one that throws acid on him, isn't he? And yeah. makes him toothless. Whereas in this one, they go, Maroney's actually not in the stand. It's Maroney sat down in the on the bench. There's another man in the stand, and that man's about to throw acid on Harvey, but he doesn't throw acid on Harvey. He just pulls a pistol out, and it doesn't fire. And then Harvey punches him in the face. Yeah. And it's like... I just thought that was a really clever homage to what we knew about the character, and it also sets him up as the lawyer really well because that's what he is, in, in obviously in, in the um, Batman lore. But yeah. I really like that little tiny scene they they snip in to give Dent a bit of authority, and to you can kind of see his bravery as well and what kind of man he is. Yeah, yeah, he's, and it also he's sets up. up the, yeah, yeah, and it, and it sets up that connection. Sorry, between Maroni and him, doesn't it as well? That rivalry. Yeah, and, and that that's storyline of Sal throwing um acid at Dent is from the long Halloween. So okay. So that's 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 where they uh they they borrow it from. Um and uh yeah it's uh it I think the the Joker stuff also heavily influenced by things like the killing joke. Yeah. So uh the uh the killing joke um Joker basically tests uh, Gordon uh, by doing horrendous things to Barbara Gordon, his daughter, uh, and uh, seeing if Gordon will snap. Okay, I didn't know that. So he, uh, the, the story of the killing joke is uh, effectively that all it takes is for someone to have one bad day. Uh, yeah. And they can be as bad as Joker is. Um. So they they borrow a lot of that from uh, right, that, like the the scene uh, the boat scene is yeah. I was going to say yeah, a big version of effectively what uh, of the stresses and strains that because um, um, I don't know if you've if you know anything about the Killing Joke, but effectively Joker paralyzes Barbara Gordon by shooting her. No, uh, I didn't. So uh, she's Batgirl, um, and. Uh, he Joker shoots her basically, and um, then does some seriously horrific things to her. Films it and shows Gordon, whilst Gordon just to just yeah. to try and break him. Yeah, uh, so they're in an amusement park, and Gordon's sort of beaten um, 
by a bunch of uh, Joker's clown posse, gets beaten by them. And then in his weakest moment, he's shown this video, but he doesn't break. So it proves it proves Joker wrong, uh, which yeah. is what happens in this film. So it, is that where the um, is that where the idea of the the video camera stuff that Joker does comes from as well? He does that a couple of times in the film, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, I <laughs> With the fake a, Batman. I have an interesting fact about those scenes. I don't know if you also know this fact. Go on. Uh, that they're entirely directed by Heath Ledger. No, I didn't know. Yeah, so he he did all those on his own, basically without Chris Nolan. He he went away and did those those videos. <laughs> so, that's really messed up. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's that was all all him. Um, but they're they're brilliant. They're menacing. They're you know. Yeah. I, I think they're, uh, they're they're what sells the joke of being completely vicious in this film um more than any other scene i think um so yeah i i, I like i like the fact that heath ledger did those that was really cool yeah i mean talking about heath for a moment like when that was first announced the the casting of heath ledger as a joker character in a batman film everyone kind of just went the good looking guy from night's tale <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. not gonna work um I don't even think it's worth... I mean, obviously, we know that Heath passed away before the film was released, so mm. that obviously had a huge impact on the film. I mean, I'm not going to say marketing campaign, but yeah, it kind of was a marketing campaign in a way that we were so aware of the film yeah. already to then find out that Heath Ledger had died whilst filming another film, you know, about a year later before this film was released... Uh, there's been loads of speculation as to whether or not the Joker character impacts his mental health. All the reading I've done about this, it seems largely false and made yeah. up by the media, which is really sad as well in its own weird way. But, yeah. you know, he, Heath was going through a lot of things in his personal life. I don't know why the media felt the need to spin it in a way of, you know, because he'd already done the Joker. He'd done the Joker and another film before he before he had the overdose and died. So there was no real connection to the Joker because he'd already done it Yeah, uh, way, way before. It was like a year and a half before the film came out. And so it, I, I, yeah, go on. Sorry. It, it just seems the, um, uh, the, the effort and the lengths he went to, to portray the Joker, you wouldn't do that if you weren't enjoying that role. No. I've got to and apparently everyone, yeah, everyone that says that they had a day on set with him, um, I think there was an interview with the man who plays Gamble, the um, the guy that Joker kills, you know, one of the mob bosses. Yeah, and he says that um, he was just such a he was just such a wonderful person to work with. He had so much fun on set. He was constantly asking for revisions from the other actors to give him tips and trying different things. And apparently, it was just a good time. There was no, yeah. there was no sense of a method actor there. There was no sense of someone who was um, in a particularly rocky place. Um, and apparently, everyone that, that met him said he was just an absolute joy on set when he was playing that character. Another mm. thing I learned about him whilst doing reading about Heath was. The, the Joker makeup, um, Heath had the prosthetics done by the um, by the team at Warner Brothers, but didn't want them to do the makeup. So he did the makeup himself every time. And that is why, if you look at his fingers in lights, particularly in the interrogation scene, which is one of the first scenes they shot as Heath as the Joker, 
um, he's got powdered makeup all in his fingernails and all over his hands. And it's because he just went, did the makeup really quickly and then sat in the chair. And it's right. so that it looks like it would have been done had he been a real mental killer clown. Yeah. He would have just, he'd have just done it himself at home before he went out. Yeah. Um, or in the car, you know. So I really like the idea that the makeup never looked perfect because it wasn't supposed to look perfect. It was supposed to look like this insane bloke just battered it on as soon as he could. And when it was leaking, he just topped it up with him by himself and that was the inspiration for it so that's why it looks so slapdash because it was brilliant it, it, yeah it, it, everything that you read about his work to make this this film it just makes you proud of what he did yeah a hundred percent i think it he did he did an incredible job um you know going up after jack nicholson as the joker and Mark Hamill as the animated Joker. Yeah, that's a you know those are big boots to fill, and he in one film basically supplanted both of them for a long time as people's favorite Joker. I totally agree. Uh, I don't think it's even. I don't even think it's worth putting him on a par with other character actors or other Joker portrayals because. A, they don't always work in the same way. You couldn't have a Jack Nicholson Joker in a Christopher Nolan world. No. And similarly, you couldn't have had the Heath Ledger Joker in any other kind of world. So I feel like for this world that they've built and for what Nolan's done, um, Heath's portrayal, it, it stand, it's going to stand the test of time forever. But I do feel like you said, for a lot of people, for you know people like us who grew up with the Jack Nicholson and Mark Hamill portrayal, that will become the one that cements in the psyche of, of Batman fans for years to come is the one that Heath yeah. Ledger did because it is just so iconic. Uh, there is no origin story. He doesn't have a real name. Uh, there's even loads of alluding to like, you know, where he may have come from on the internet or people believe that he might have been like a serviceman with PTSD. Um, don't listen to me, guys. Honestly, go and Google it. There are so yeah. many fan theories. But I like that idea that he invokes this idea of he just born out of chaos. He comes because he's needed to be there yeah. He comes because of what Batman and Gordon said in Batman Begins about escalation, that the more you try to put a lid on the, the mob, they'll they'll open the box and release something worse. And a Joker is released by the mob onto Gotham in response to Batman and Gordon's um, crackdown on crime, really, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he puts himself out there as the answer to Gotham's situation, doesn't he? He, he thinks chaos will get them out of it and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, he's. I, the other important thing is he's a, a as a villain. He's vicious. He's horrific, but he also has some incredibly funny lines, and that's exactly yeah, what you need from Joker. <laughs> like his introduction with the mob, where he makes a pencil disappear. <laughs> yeah, I really like the bit better than that one. I really like the bit when he opens the jacket and it's just loads of little grenades all attached by like little bits of purple string. Yeah. And they're just really slapdash and really badly done. That was my favourite. Um, and then there's a bit where Gamble says, you think you can just steal from us and just walk away? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I love it. It's so good. He, he's he's fantastic. And... Uh, the uh, the great line: If you're good at something, never do it for free. As well, yeah. It's just that, like I say, it's a really quotable film. 
Oh, massively. I think the film, um, this is, again, one of those things that I will talk about. I know we, I don't want to talk about everything because we haven't got enough time simply to do everything, but, like, there's bits in it where I felt that I didn't like it. And this isn't, it's not a thing. I'm not going to let anyone, you know, people can scream from the top of the highest tower about it. But for me personally, I think I like this one the least out of the three. Okay. No, I can see and, that. And I'm not saying that this isn't a masterpiece of filmmaking because it is. Like, it is that good. It is The Godfather Part 2. It is as good as anything. It is yeah. such an iconic movie that works both on its own and within the context of a trilogy, it works. But I feel thematically, I think there's the things that we were saying that were missing from it, like the idea that Batman kind of gets lost in it a little bit. Um, I felt that there were too many subplots. Mm. that they could have been trimmed back a little bit to bring more of the essence to the surface. I also felt that, and we'll talk about it, yeah, after there's a crucial scene, middle of the movie, where um, the Joker plays his hand and he says, I've got Harvey Dent, I've got Rachel, they're in two different warehouses, I'm going to tell you where they are, but your choice is you're going to have to choose which one lives and dies. Brilliant, right? Yeah. It's such an amazing scene. It's paced beautifully. You even have the bit where Joker's got the mirror and he's going to try and kill the policeman. You've got that rising tension of the wire strings from um, James Newton Howard and, and Hans Zimmer yeah. rising up as Batman's racing one place, Gordon's racing to the other place, and the, the pacing is superb, and it is amazing. You then find out the Joker's switched them. Because that's the Joker, it's, yeah, right. Like what? And then, and then, they'll never kill off the love interest. Oh, they've killed the love interest, and it's such a big moment in the film, and it's done so beautifully, and it has so much gravity to it. I felt like after that, the film struggles to regain its pace. Yeah. I would agree. And I really mean this. Like, and I and I know a lot of people argue with me. The fairies thing, the hospital bit. I felt like after Rachel goes, it was racking up so much to that point. Like the film was just on an upward curve. And after Rachel goes, it kind of tries to bring itself back up again after the after the hospital bit. And it just can't quite do it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't think I like the hospital sequence. I felt like the bit with Joker in the mask as the nurse, it was funny, yeah, and it was weird. I felt Harvey in the bed... Um, the, the bit where Gordon comes in and speaks to him is really good. That's awesome, isn't it? That's that's like yeah. the scenes you'd get with Scarecrow and Falcone in the, yeah. in the first one. It's it's got a similar feel to that, hasn't it? And for me, I had it on my uh, I had it on my sound system, my soundbar. And there's a and anyone that's watched this on a sound system will know exactly what I'm talking about. Like obviously, when he goes into the room and he says, um, "What was that name you all gave me?" and he goes, "What was that, Gordon?" Say it. And yeah. he goes, "Say it really loud." And you're like, "Jesus, it's so." scary it's brilliant and that's the bit where obviously he gets the coin doesn't he um from bruce and he turns around and says to gordon why should i hide who i am and you see half of the face is burnt off and half of the face is is still aaron eckhart yeah and he's he's turned he's already turned so for me the bit with joker going into the hospital bed to manipulate harvey and giving him the pistol feels pointless not only, pointless. It, not only is it pointless, how does Harvey only <laughs> not recognize, recognize him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, there's, there's some little plot issues that I have like that. Like, how does it, 
the other one, it, it all seems to circle, circle around Har- Harvey Dent. At the beginning of the film, you know, when they're discussing how they're going to capture all, all the mob bosses based on what Lau knows. Yeah. Why does Dent have to explain Rico to Gordon? Yeah, isn't that, Gordon a copper? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's done for our benefit, but it's so stupid because it's like he's a seasoned copper. He should know what Rico law is. Yeah, but... he's also like in charge of the major crimes commission who are tasked with organised crime. Surely you must know all the loopholes in the organised crime laws. Oh, dear. So, yeah. yeah there's, so there's some little bits like that where I think this film was so perfectly executed for the majority of it. And then yeah. there's these little bits that just got through. Do you know what though? Again, the thing with Dark Knight is it's the it's it's like any film that's larger than life. You just have to look at it, and then people like us come along and start tearing it down because it's funny. We are basically like the Joker of the Christopher Nolan movie world. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want a perfect film, James. I want absolute chaos to happen. I want to rip it down. Um, but no, it, it is. It's. I just felt like after the warehouse scene. Uh, and after you know, you get to hear Rachel's monologue because Alfred gets the card out and reads it, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and and then there's a line where Gordon and well, Bruce and and Alfred get their somber moment, and you see Bruce in an armchair with all the Batman paraphernalia around him, and it's all just strewn out on the floor. Wonderful the lighting's beautiful. The shot's amazing. Christian Bale is welling up. Alfred's there, and Alfred's about to give him the letter that says, I love Harvey, not you. And Bruce says, "I we're going to marry her, we were going to live together, that we're going to be the end once I've got all this sorted out. And he says to Alfred, what's that? And he goes, no, it's not the right time now. And then he asks him, how did you catch the the bandit? The the size of a tangerine. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best line in that film. Um, Sorry, we'll talk about that another day because I've got too much. Um, Ruby, the size of a tangerine, best line ever. And then he says, how did you catch the bandit in Burma? And he says, we burnt the forest down. Cut. And then for me, that could have been straight into the next act, which is basically Harvey going around killing everybody. I don't think you need the hospital bit. I don't think you need the lawyer bit. Because that's the lawyer bit, isn't it? Where he yeah. says, "If you, because a lawyer that tried to blackmail Bruce at the beginning, who learned about the tumbler, it's just a bit too much." I felt like it deterred us yeah. from the plot. I, I agree. To- I, in my notes, I put the plot about the lawyer being protected feels like a filler episode in a TV series. It's nice, totally. but it's not yeah. important. It, it um, you know, you, you watch, um, let's say, say like the joke of burning his half of the money. Yeah, that's great. quite fun. That that's cool, but. You could quickly. I know you need the hospital bit to get the uh, hostages for the yeah for the, the final act. The final act. So you need something there, I guess. But you know, he could have just he could have captured school kids on the bus that he nicked at the beginning. Yeah, or whatever. Oh yeah, it, there could have been other ways of doing it. But the yeah, this this last act I think is the weakest part of the film. Um, yeah, I agree. And that that's not saying much because the film in total is amazing. So a weak part of an amazing film is still probably quite good. It's yeah. just it's standing next to like you say some really big moments, you know, Rachel dying mm-hmm. is a big moment. Uh 
Harvey becoming Two-Face is a big yeah. moment. I mean, do you remember in Batman Begins, there's that bit where I said to you, I love the bat chase, the bat pod chase, sorry, the yeah. Batmobile chase, and then he saves Rachel, he brings her back to the bat cave, they have a bit of a moment together, and then it cuts to the party upstairs in Wayne Manor. Yeah. And you think, and then Alfred and him have that amazing exchange. You have the exchange between Rachel, the exchange between Alfred, then you have an exchange between Fox and Bruce at the party, and then it's you must meet Mr. Ra's al Ghul. It's like, oh, we're straight into the final act. It's yeah. there. It's in the party where he burns the house down and it all kicks off. So I felt like this film needed that bit after Rachel died. You know, I don't know. Gordon could have gone to visit him. I don't know. Something to visit Den and Dent's escaped from um, his custody. He was He's killed two people and he's left the hospital. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it didn't need a whole scene. It just needed enough for us to go, oh... Oh, yeah. Harvey has gone really bad then. Um, because then the next bit where you see Harvey, for me, would have been the perfect introduction to Two-Face, is the moment, again, it's self-contained film, where um, uh, Harvey's in the bar with um, Wurtz. Yeah. And, he's, and, and he says to Wurtz, uh, Jesus Christ, I thought you were dead. And he goes, half. Yeah. That's it. That's an intro to a character. You didn't need the hospital bed shit. Get rid no. of that. You didn't even need to show him at the hospital bed because he had bandages on his face. So I think the bit where you introduce Dent should be when Dent is in the bar with Wurtz. He spins the coin, he kills Wurtz. And it, yeah. and that those little sections, I think, are brilliant. Like, um, my favourite scene in the whole movie, and I will let you speak in a minute, James, I'm sorry. No, no. But my favourite scene in the whole film is the scene with R- Maroney... And Dent in the car. I just think it's wonderful. And I'd never realised before until this time around that as you the camera pans across to Moroni getting in the limo, you see a man getting snatched off yeah. screen. Did you see? Do you know which bit yeah. I'm talking about? I know the bit you you're get, talking about. Yeah, he's about to get in the limo and he just gets snatched and pulled backwards. And <laughs> then you're like, oh, so then yeah, Harvey's nipped in the car quickly before before um, Moroni sees him. And then Maroney gets in the car and you have that amazing shot of Dent with the pistol to his forehead, just staring yeah. down at the floor with the sun on one side of his face and the shadow on the other side. And the sun's hitting the burnt side and the shadow is on his light side. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. It's such a wonderful shot. And he doesn't even kill Maroney. He just kills the driver instead. Yeah. And um, th- which those is even scenes, funnier. For me, are like the best Punisher film we'll ever likely to get. Oh, Massively, it's it's very. It feels like a Punisher type storyline. It, it it's really good. I that I think the 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 final act has lots of really cool highlights, but yeah. I don't think any of them necessarily uh, outshine the first half of the film. Um, no, and I agree. I, I think in some ways, like the the Joker stops being as funny. After he's burnt the money, I think that's, yeah. the, the, that's like the last time you see him being really funny, and it, the rest of the time he's just angry because things aren't going his way, and he sort of loses some of that charisma. Yeah, because did you to that did point, you notice that? Control. Yeah, he has. Did you notice that Lau is on the top of that money pile? Yes. Which they don't really make a big deal of, but Lau is at the top of the money pile. Yes. And he's going to hand Lau over to the Chechen along with the money. And he just burns the money and presumably just burns Lao to death. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think that, that that's sort of like his, his ultimate sort of 
I, I'm a fan of chaos moment, isn't it? And the uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I love the uh, the chat he has with the police officer in the cell as well before um, before he escapes, and he yeah. has, he asks the police officer how many of his friends he's killed, and the guy says six, and Heath Ledger just mouths six, <laughs> and, and it's yeah. just I don't know what it's it's horrendous, it's horrible, yeah, but it had it me is. in stitches because it's just yeah. the way he mouths six back at him and looks yeah. really impressed and you know shocked what? at you, the same time. You are you are bang on as well with all of that, like the sequence in the tunnels when they have to take um, Den Den is um, pretended to be Batman. He goes in the SWAT van doesn't he yeah and they and they have this high speed pursuit in the tunnels below Gotham with Joker's in a in a truck that says slaughter is the best medicine on it yeah um, which I thought was a really nice touch and then obviously he, he starts out with like a small gun and then he starts with a shotgun and then he ends with a bazooka trying yeah. to blow the truck up <laughs> he just can't quite get the gun big enough and like you said it's stupid and horrific but so funny in the context of the world that Nolan has created for us. Yeah. Um, that bit with the bat- Batmobile as well, the noise that thing makes in the tunnels oh, yeah. is phenomenal. Like when yeah. it come, it runs into the garbage truck and it just takes the top of the garbage truck off. <laughs> and it's, um, it's this is so great. thrilling. It's it's a fan- fantastic scene. Uh, then the, 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 the bit afterwards kind of doesn't ruin it, but it, the, there's a bunch of scenes with Batman blowing up cars that yeah. you have to assume are just parked, but they look like they're in the road. <laughs> do they have people in them? How does he know that they don't have people in them? Don't worry about it, James. Uh, don't worry about it. It's fine. It, and then he ruins a shopping mall, doesn't he? I mean, this yeah, Batman, he does. He goes through a shopping mall, yeah. He's, he's, he's quite, you know, quite the vandal. I, I, I'm not sure we should be supporting this kind of vigilantism. Uh, but, it's like the bit when he kicks the fat bloke out of the truck and goes, excuse me, sir, I want to drive, and just throws him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you're right. Do you know what? After the Laos sequence, he does, he stops being funny. Yeah. Um, and then you have the bit with the... Um, yeah, I think the action sequence at the end is fine. Like, it, it's really exciting. You've got the weird bat goggles, which give you sonar vision. Yeah. Don't really like those, but we'll park that for another day. Cool. And then then you've got... So the clowns are the hostages, the doctors are the targets. Batman's got to stop the, the clowns from getting shot yeah. whilst taking out the SWAT team coming down and the SWAT team going up the stairs at the same time and try and get to the Joker, which I think is really cool. Only Nolan can do the action sequences like that, though, yeah. where you very clearly lay out like five key things that have got to happen. And Joker's at the top of the building. Batman starts at the bottom and just has to work his way up the building. Um, and it's brilliant, isn't it? It works so well, that sequence. It's great. And I, I love the fact that Joker's now got the dogs. Yeah, he's got the well. two dogs from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, um, like I say, the, the pacing of that bit is fantastic. Because yeah. you, you're not sort of... You don't feel like you're waiting on any one bit of that story to happen. It's all happening at the same time. But yeah, with the boats com- as well. Yeah, it's not confusing in any way. It it all seems to make sense. Um, and no one's great at laying things like that out. I read a really cool thing about the boats. Um, again, it's a, it's probably just a fan theory, but I liked it. And it was it was basically that the Joker wants to prove, like you said earlier, that the world is evil deep down to its core if Mm. it comes to saving your own skin 
which we've all, which as a concept people have always played with in movies and, and cinema and TV shows and, and books. It's the it's the dark heart, isn't it? Yeah. Behind humanity, what is humanity willing to do when its own life is threatened? And the idea that did Joker really give them both the alternate, you know, um, remote controls, or did he give them their own remote control? Do you know what I mean? I, I'd like yeah. that idea to be explored maybe more. Or did he not even? Did they not even have a remote control? For either or, it was just going to blow both of them up. So as soon as one of them people twisted the key, it was just going to blow all of it up yeah. to prove a point because that's all Joker wanted to do, wasn't it? Prove a point. Um, it takes a long fucking time for anyone to do anything about those detonators. <laughs> it really does. I, I mean, they're, they're able to have a vote, but it seems like they only have a vote in that one room. Like, <laughs> yeah, what about the rest of the boat? of people. <laughs> So I, I don't I don't know whether they get a say or not, but um, I do like that it's the criminals that come up with a good idea of just throwing yeah. the detonator out the window. I love that bit. That, I think that's really, I think the tension in that because it's again it's that that score that Joker wire score which is really evil and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until that man throws it out the side window and the mm. little bold man the old guy just kind of has cold feet doesn't he and puts it back on the side yeah and then hangs his head in shame and then joker says you know like you don't have to i've got to do everything myself haven't i <laughs> um but yeah the, that that works really well i do feel like the, the the climax is fine, um, and then there's the bit with you know the real climax when Joker is apprehended is um, is the the scene with Gordon's kids and yeah. then which again like you said feels it feels detached from the film a bit um, yeah but it feels also like it needs to be there I and I, I quite like mm. the fact that at that point in the film I think especially the first time I watched it. I'd forgotten about Harvey. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you just reminded, actually, yeah, there's still this other problem out there. Yeah. And he's just as menacing, and he's willing to kill one of Gordon's family. Yeah. And you think, wow, yeah, I, that that hits you like a ton of bricks when he's asking Gordon to choose one of his family to to see die in front of him. You know what's really good as well, and it's sick in its own way, but these are, like I said to you at the beginning of the episode, these are the three men who start out as the idealistic trio. Mm. And by the end of the film, Joker's already gone by this point. So this is now what you're reduced to. You're reduced to Batman, you know, pleading, Gordon's on the floor, and Gordon's kid is getting a gun shoved into his skull by Harvey. Yeah. It just shows you the degradation of the characters throughout the course of the movie. Most of this damage, obviously, caused by Joker yeah. and by the, by the death of Rachel and all the things that have happened. They all started out with these moral compasses. To see Harvey's moral compass go so badly wrong, I think, is the core of the film. And I think the ending is... I think it's amazing. I think that if I have to say anything about it, that final scene with Dent and and Commissioner Gordon and Batman, just the acting of of um, Gary Oldman, as I said yeah. last time, Gary Oldman, man, fucking hell, yeah, <sighs> he deserves an Academy Award for that film, for those yeah. three films, and we'll talk about him more in the next episode. But he's phenomenal, James. Oh, he isn't is. he? He's absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, he. he quite frankly, always is. There's, yeah. 
Like, even in a, a really schlocky film like Air Force One, where he's playing a Russian, yeah. he's great. He's, <laughs> he's, a, so he's a very believable Russian terrorist. Um, yeah. But, no, I think, as Jim Gordon, he's uh, he's just spot on. You know, it's... Um, it, it's like when you saw uh, the Raimi version of James Jonah Jameson, you think, well, there's no other yeah. person that can do that now. Yeah, That's yeah. my James Jonah Jameson. This is my Gordon, I think. He's just perfect. I agree. I could. I think his performance, again, is so understated in these films, and especially in the second one, um, mm. to where the character gets to. Because obviously the character gets presumed dead. He's presumed dead for about 20 minutes, isn't he, until he captures Joker. Yeah. And then finally becomes Commissioner Gordon. But, um, yeah, that final act, um, the music was completely composed by James Newton Howard. Mm. And it was a mixture of... Um, if you listen to Harvey's um, theme throughout the film, if you get the soundtrack, it's always easier. You just listen to Harvey's theme. It's more of a trumpet, pride and glory, you know, mm. we're going to achieve something theme, and it's got like mellow undertones to it. When he turns to Dent, there's a moment where the music shifts and you get the influence of Joker's strings. Yeah. Then it becomes a... Um, how do you even describe this? It, it's like a tragic melody and mm. it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds through that final scene until Batman takes him off the top of the ledge. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, amazing. Like when music and film really come together and work. Oh, yeah. Uh, like I said to you, you watch that scene without the context of the rest of the film, your heart is in your throat watching that scene. It's so intense. <laughs> yeah. It, it's uh, It's, again, like you say, it's the... It's the marriage of of sound and vision, and um, it, even out of context, it works. But when you have the weight of the rest of the film behind it, it's yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's wonderful. And then obviously, Batman tackles Harvey to his death. The coin falls down next to the kid and it's face up so he wasn't going to shoot him anyway, or was he going to shoot him? Like we don't know, do we? You know, yeah. that's he, the question. He makes his own look. Yeah. And he dies. Yeah. Harvey actually dies, good and proper. Yeah. And then we have the choice, James, the bit where they decide to cover up Harvey Dent because, like we all know, the film is about succession, you know, mm. that Batman was going to hand it in and give it to Harvey. Harvey was going to become a legitimate source of hope and then he's turned bad and killed all these people. There is a bit that doesn't make any sense. He says something like, um, five people dead... Two of them cops. You're like, well, he didn't kill the second cop. He just slapped her in the face, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah. When he when he sees Ramirez and he blackmails, he, he says to Ramirez, "Tell Barbara Gordon to go to the to 52nd Street or whatever." Um, he doesn't kill um, Ramirez. I don't no. think he just sort of whacks her and says, "You live to fight another day," doesn't he? Yeah. So God knows who else he's killed. That doesn't really make any sense. Nope. I just thought that a minute ago. But anyway, yeah, so that's that's where you end up. And then obviously Batman flies off into the night, um, pursued by the police, having been told Gordon to blame him for the atrocities caused by Dent yeah. in order to preserve Dent's public image so that Joker doesn't get to defeat them two. <sighs> <laughs> that just about covers it. That that it's good though, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is really good. Um, there's just there's so much to the film. 
and like I say, it was the first film I went back to and watched within sort of a week of seeing it. I think I went back again and then again and again. And yeah. it's, I just, I loved so much of it. I think um, the the other thing that made this film important, I think I'm right in saying, obviously uh, DVDs were really brought in with The Matrix. But yeah. this is, I think, the first film I had on Blu-ray. Oh really? Uh, so I think that's this was, cool. I think this was the first film I got on Blu-ray. So I think this was part of that for me anyway. It was that appreciation of you know HD and what HD meant uh, yeah. at home. Um, and uh, yeah, I I think um, I don't think you can do better for a superhero film that's made by someone who isn't really a superhero film fan. Yeah. Uh so I think it's uh, it that in itself is impressive. Yeah, I think so. I I always said it's not really it's the least Batman-y Batman film you'll ever meet uh, you'll ever watch because Yeah. There's no bats in it. Um yeah. yeah, it's got the Joker in it, but it is more of that as we said earlier, it's more of that um LA Confidential um heat sort yeah. of feel to it. It's very grim and gritty. It's not afraid to to get its hands dirty as a film. Um, but it also, it's thematically very different to any other Batman film because it's not really about him. It's about it's about the city and the, the overall picture of hope versus chaos and yeah. how do your choices impact the things around you. And it all comes back to that line at the, at the end of Batman Begins, wasn't it, which is about escalation. Yeah. Um, we do something, they do something worse. We start carrying pistols, they buy automatics. When the Joker comes out of that that need for the desperation of the mob, um, but by the end of the film, the mob are all dead, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's it. they they soon realise, and I think when uh, when Batman's interrogating Sal Maroney on the rooftop, Sal's realised yeah. that getting involved with the Joker was a mistake because there's yeah. there's no off switch. You can't stop it. No. It's just it, it it's this ride that you're all in. On. That's great as well, isn't it? When Mark Maroney's on the roof and he just drops him, he says, "This height won't kill me." He's like, "Good." <laughs> yeah. Just drops him. Yeah. Like, I'm counting. <laughs> Cracks on it. both like... of his legs. Oh, oh. yeah. Um, but oh, such a good film. Right, should we do our five facts, James? Go for it, Jake. Five facts. <laughs> God, I'm so hot in this room. <laughs> I've got sweat dripping off my forehead. It's gross. Is that fact one? Um, that's fact one, yeah. Um, <sighs> fact number one. They really did flip a 16-wheeler in Chicago, downtown. It was a real stunt, James. It was a real 16-wheeler that they wow. had rigged up to flip, and it did have an actual stunt driver driving it. Blimey. <laughs> Gosh. Apparently they did a lot of work with the um, city of Chicago, obviously securing all the locations for Gotham. Um, and obviously Gotham being, Chicago being the backdrop from all of Gotham, including all of the cityscape sequences. Um, if you've been to if you've been to Chicago, I, my brother lives there, you go round Chicago and you can't help but bump into something and think, I've definitely seen that somewhere. <laughs> it'll, be in the, it'll be in this film that you've seen it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and then so they did it. They they filmed down in La Salle uh, in Chicago, and they flipped a sixteen wheel truck, which I think is amazing in camera. Yeah, to get that because Nolan said there was no way they could have done it any other way, and it had look as good as he expected it to look. No, um, no that's brilliant because if it had been done today by a different director, it would have been CG. So, oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so no, it's just too they, expensive. They were that committed to it. It's just incredible. Uh, number two, when coming up with a theme for the Joker score, Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard decided upon using razor blades and scratching them down the side of a violin to get the noise of the rising tension of Joker's theme. So that violin theme is completely manufactured through the use of grinding razor blades across the the, um, the violin strings and then recording nice. it, and it just ramps up. Yeah, and that's it. Apparently, uh, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's such a weird sound that is made, but effective. Every time it kicks in, you know the Joker's on his way. Um, number three. It's another Joker fact. Yeah. Because uh, obviously we could just talk about him all day. Uh, Ledger's Joker licks his lips a lot in between um, dialogue. Oh, yeah. This was, a, this was not only a tick of the character, but actually something that Ledger used to keep the prosthetics from drying out and falling off during long dialogue scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently that was all... It became a tick, but it was deliberately used in order to, to mask his prosthetics. Nice. Apparently, um, when Eckhart became Two-Face in the final act of the film, <clears throat> Nolan had looked at the Tommy Lee Jones version, you know? Yeah. And he'd said to Eckhart, I don't want any ticks, I don't want any noises, and I don't want any... <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so Eckhart was, Eckhart was specifically told that that... that should just be the dark channeling of him. Yeah. And it's got nothing to do... It can't be comic booky. It can't be silly. It can't have ticks because the Joker's already got all of that. They needed him to be deadpan yeah. and serious and evil. And I think that works really well. So I just thought that was an interesting fact of uh, direction that, nice. that um, Aaron Eckhart was given. Uh, number four... Um, Aaron Eckhart has cited that Dent's inspiration was primarily Robert Kennedy. Oh, okay. Um, both in look and charisma. Uh, he also modelled the look on um, Robert Redford. Nice, yeah. In making the hair lighter in order to make himself look more dashing. He also wanted to um, show that determination to slam organised crime as his mantra, similar to Robert Kennedy, which I thought was really yeah, cool. that's good. Um, number five. This is an interesting fact, James. I really did have to dig for this one. Uh, I read about it ages ago and I couldn't find enough information on it. But it's on a website called Cinema Blend. <clears throat> I'm going to have to st- struggle with this name, but a recovering heroin addict named David Dust Malakan um, got a role in The Dark Knight and it profoundly changed his life. Okay. He was one of the people who felt that he owes Christopher Nolan a great deal. David was a recovering drug addict at the time that he made his feature film debut as Joker's schizophrenic scapegoat assistant, Thomas Schiff. So he's the guy that um, Harvey abducts in the truck and Ah. ties him to the bed and takes him off down the alley. Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, He's a real, you know, young actor. He was a a recovering addict um, and he got a role, a speaking role in a Christopher Nolan movie just by auditioning. He said it profoundly changed his life. The actor would then go on to play Kurt in Ant-Man, um, a character called Polka Dot Man in James Gunn's Suicide Squad, 
and yeah. he's in collaboration with Denny uh, Villeneuve in the film Dune. So he's actually got a whole career off the back of giving wow. up drugs, meeting Christopher Nolan, and that one little role as uh, Thomas Schiff. So, yeah. yeah, really, really nice little story there. I thought it was really good, and he's oh. become a really good actor just on the back of that one film. That's cool. So you can get your break, yeah. even if it isn't a massive multi-billion-dollar Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> yeah, there's hope for us all yet. Oh, that's so funny. Do you want um, some some bonus round facts? I've got a ooh, couple. Yes, I please. Throw your way. Um, throw them. We, we we talk about you know this film feeling weighty, and it's yeah. quite a long film time wise. Are you aware that the IMAX print of The Dark Knight is nine point five miles long? No way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Jesus. I, I found that online. I don't know how true it is, but if that is true, I love that fact. We, well, never, we never measure films in miles, do we? No, we don't. We're gonna have to start doing that, yeah. aren't we? Um, the <laughs> other interesting fact is the uh, it's similar in in terms of people getting a break in the in the film. The Italian yeah. actor who dubbed Heath Ledger's lines in the film is the son of the guy who dubbed over Jack Nicholson's lines in Batman. Huh. So, uh, the, that's weird. The the next line says, "We imagine their family dinners are terrifying," <laughs> which probably would be. So, is his son gonna dub like the next Joker, or is he dubbing? Is he done Jared Leto's one? <laughs> oh God! Yeah, hopefully, hopefully they keep it in the family. But those are those are my uh, sort of quick fire bonus ones. I I did use the uh, homemade video thing where they were directed entirely by. Uh, yeah, you did. I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, but yeah, oh, I like man. I like the IMAX one. The uh, nine nine point five miles of IMAX print. <laughs> that's so good, isn't it? <laughs> They're the only kind of facts that you want on Do the Franchise. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're totally useless, but you never know. They're good. They're good. They're a good fact. <laughs> um, uh, I just so much, you know, like The Dark Knight, anyone that's watching this, there's so many things that you can talk about with this movie, but you could just go on forever. Yeah. There is one fact that I missed out of the other month. Uh, I say last week again, but it wasn't last week. When me and James did Batman Begins, I've had a lot of flack from my Sheffield friends. Um, do you know what I'm going to say? No. Okay. So there is a scene in Batman Begins where Bruce is on the run and he he runs off to like Tibet at yeah. the beginning, and he's in a marketplace and he steals some fruit from a market. Oh yeah, and he gives the fruit to a small sort of African child. That child is wearing a vintage Sheffield United Blades football top. Oh. Uh, and yeah. apparently, if you Google it, like, Sheffield United fans are very proud of this. <laughs> like, it's weird than I could ever imagine. So I figured I'd throw it in at the end of this film. No. I haven't. I, I did go back and look at it because I didn't notice it. Um, it's a very iconic striped uh, red and white shirt from uh, like the 80s or 90s. But yeah, um, football top. So there's a football fact, James, as well. <laughs> oh, there we go. We've covered all bases. And uh, next time around, we'll be doing Dark Knight Rises, which I personally can't wait to because I haven't seen it for ages. <laughs> yeah, it's it's of the three, it's the one I've watched the least. So yeah, yeah I don't be... think I've seen it for about two, three years, maybe longer. That should be uh, should be good for us both to uh, go back and have a look at. Lovely. So that's our homework then, and we'll uh, catch up next week. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks, Jake. <laughs> I'm going to go and have an ice bath now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, me too. It's 
very very warm is your chair wet (laughs) (laughs) Um, no but thank you for letting the audience know that yours is no worries yeah (laughs) right thank you guys and thanks james i'll see you next week take care Bye. Bye. bye bye bye